Canada's parliament yesterday voted to list what was happening in northwest China in Xinjiang province against the Uyghur Muslims as a genocide. One of the few governments that's done so, which has led to all kinds of questions as, what is genocide? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Canada. You're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? There's no question that the what the Chinese government has been doing in the northwestern part of the country for the better part of over a decade is tragic. They are involved in the annihilation, is the best word I, I can use, of the Uyghur culture, which is a Muslim culture that's been there for many, many centuries. And in the wake of a few terrorist attacks in the 2010s, in which several dozen people were killed by Uyghur Muslim terrorists, some of whom were, actually had fought in Afghanistan with Al-Qaeda, the Chinese government has come down hard. Uh, they've raised mosques. They've created what they call vocational centers, which clearly are concentration camps. They have um, forced men to, to shave their beards. They're, they're f- forbidding women to wear the veil. In essence, they're trying to eliminate Islam from that part of the country. And they're saying it basically as a counterterrorism move. So there's been a big debate. Uh, what to call this? Is it a genocide? Is it something else? I thought I would bring you to the conversation somebody who knows a heck of a lot more about this issue than I do. I'm very pleased to welcome Kyle Matthews. He's executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, or MIGS, at Concordia University. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a digital fellow there, and he's going to walk us through exactly what the heck is going on. So, Kyle, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me on, Phil. Okay, let's start with the easy question, Kyle. Uh, as the head of MIGS at Concordia University and somebody who's been looking at this issue for quite some time, what do you understand by the word genocide? What does it mean to you? Well, I, I look at genocide and I look at it not as a word, but as an international law. Um, the 1948 uh, Convention on the Punishment and Prevention of the Crime of Genocide was the first um, first human rights law signed at the UN. Um, and and that, that it's pretty clear. It details what the crime of genocide is. Um, and so... I think if anyone that wants to understand what is genocide, one has to go to look at that. It's, it's available. It's a, it's a it's very short two pages. It outlines all these principles that the governments that have endorsed it or are signatories of what the crime is. Canada's a signatory. China's a signatory. Um, and, it, and it states quite clearly uh, it's, it has to show that some intent of a government or a non-government entity, like we saw like ISIS committing genocide against Yazidis in Iraq. It doesn't only have to be governments. Mm-hmm. But that there is, there has to be an intent to destroy whole or in part. And where I see a lot of, um, um, I get like shoddy thinking or whatever, is that a lot of people say it's not genocide uh, because there isn't mass killing of people. People tend to think of the Holocaust of hmm. six million European Jews that were that were killed in industrial like fashion or mass killings, dead bodies, and say right. that that only genocide can encompass mass killing, but the Genocide Convention says actually, no, there's a whole set of other other acts. So um, sterilizing, preventing births within one group um, is a form of genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, that's happened to the Uyghurs, um, of separating when one group takes children from the other group and, and moves it to another group. Uh, that's a form of genocide. Um, and we've had that cases with the Uyghurs where mm-hmm. there have been uh, children taken away and put with on Chinese family or put in orphanages. Right. So, so it, you have to look at the genocide convention and, and that's, that's where we have to go first to understand what the crime is and, and how it's seen by, um, by states who, who, who have signed on to this convention. I did look at the definition uh, when I saw the parliamentary vote in Canada, because I wanted to understand better what exactly these MPs had voted for. I must admit, I was quite surprised at the, 
uh, width, the breadth rather, uh, of the definition, I too thought that genocide as a, as a term in the English language had to involve actual murder. As you said, it was it, the, the convention was adopted in the, in the aftermath of World War II. We all know the Holocaust was a genocide. Do you think back then, looking back, I don't know if you can answer this question, Kyle, but was that rather uh, far thinking of the uh, recent founders of the United Nations to look at uh, a term, a genocide, in the wake of this horrendous mass killing of European Jews, and to expand it in such a way that in the future it would apply to cases where it was not just murder, but as you said, sterilization, forced disappearances, forced separations. That was actually quite quite forward-thinking to the UN, UN body at the time, wasn't it? It was forward-thinking, but one has to look at like who was the mastermind of trying to get this passed as law, and it was, wasn't actually just the UN. It was it was Raphael Lemkin. He was a, a, a Polish intellectual, a Polish Jew who, uh, before the Holocaust, studied um, uh, cases of what he saw as genocide um, of the Armenians, going back in ancient history mm. of cases. So, so it really was Raphael Lemkin that helped develop this, and through um, a determination as an individual who would who spoke multiple languages that would lobby governments uh, non-stop them to sign on. I mean, the first, I think, uh, most surprising thing I learned about Lemkin was the first country that agreed to his definition and support it was Saudi Arabia. Uh, it wasn't It wasn't a Western European state. Oh, but, really? Uh, yeah, it was Saudi Arabia. Um, but he he saw it wider than just mass killing, that, that it's true. Um, yeah, mass killing, one thinks it's the worst form, but, but in order to, the convention is on the, uh, uh, is on the prevention and punishment. So it has two angles. One, it's to punish those responsible after the fact or after the genocide started, but it's also prevention. So it's to prevent it before it goes to mass killing. Um, And the point is that some governments have uh, played with this and have tried to destroy a group, mass brainwashing, destroying cultural heritage, Mm -hmm. um, to bring about the destruction, the, 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 the cultural destruction of this group. So, so it was forward thinking, um, but it 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 also is based on on longer term historical analysis of of what this crime was before the Genocide Convention came into being. Right. So, if you could maybe walk my listeners through, I think when we when we think of genocide, obviously we think of the Holocaust. We would think of what happened in Rwanda '94 with the Hutus and the, and the Tutsis. Um, Probably fewer of my listeners are aware of the Armenian accusations of genocide against the Ottoman Empire in 1950-1960. Of course, Turkey to this day denies uh, that anything happened. So, what are some other historical, you know, large-scale genocides uh, in the term in the ways you just explained it that people probably aren't as aware of? Well, so so one example is looking at at the Canadian experience of Indigenous people. Um, uh, we have this massive debate about, you know, and, and Prime Minister Trudeau did admit after the murder of missing Indigenous that that what he thought uh, that there was genocide. And, and, and so in the case of Canada, um, one could say that, you know, separating children from their families um, into mm-hmm. residential schools was a form of genocide. We have cases where we have smaller groups that have had government has um, has, you know, prevented births within group that, that doesn't take place during periods Mm. of conflict. Um, We do have most large scale Mm. mass atrocity crimes of which genocide is one of them. A lot of the the large scale genocides have taken place within some kind of form of conflict that provides a cover. We saw that in Rwanda. Uh, We've saw that in Darfur. Um, Mm. 
we saw the cases in in, in Myanmar, um, but but there are other cases where mm-hmm. where yeah, it doesn't meet the threshold of of, of armed conflict where there are soldiers uh, killing people en masse. Um, but we do have you know other um, examples from history and, and our our own where we we can say that other measures were used in order to destroy the group, destroy their culture, prevent births, and um, so. So yeah, that, that's what we're struggling with. And, and um, I think it's just in the last little while that people are really waking up to this realization. So speaking of uh, difficulties in dealing with genocide, of course, is the other side of the ledger is that states will, will deny. Uh, they will reject the accusations. China's doing this in Xinjiang. Uh, of course, as I said, the Ottoman uh, Empire and the, and the Turks to this day, I mean, Erdogan still denies what had happened in world in World War One, and I still I still think the the estimates of numbers of dead are in the high hundreds of thousands, if not in the millions. And I don't think we'll ever get a, a full answer to that. Of course, what Myanmar is doing against the Rohingya Muslims in the northwest Rohingya province, uh, they're denying that as well. So, you know, we have the convention, we have signatories of which. So, for example, China has a signatory of the convention, and yet it basically says, "Piss off! Uh, what we're doing in Xinjiang is not genocide." What does that then then do to the ability to pursue? either from a, uh, an international legal perspective or merely a public, I don't know, opprobrium or a, a public denouncement of what states are doing, if, they, if they're going to say, you know what, get lost. Uh, we don't think it's genocide. And there's, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, well, um, this is the truth. Whenever, uh, in most cases, when uh, genocide is committed, um, governments tend to hide it. Um, the only mm-hmm. the, the only case where I saw recent genocide that 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 showed it was ISIS when they killed Yazidis or, or other infidels, they would broadcast that, put it on video. Well, they, they, they were proud of They were proud of the fact. They were proud of they, fact. they were proud of it, but, but generally governments really hide it and they deny it and they go to great lengths. And we've seen that. I just, I just received an email this morning um, from a story that in which um, uh, the Chinese state-run media has been uh, buying advertisement on Facebook to promote basically yeah what's called disinformation of what's happening yeah. to the Uyghurs, but a form of genocide denial. So they're putting enormous resources I- into denying it. Um, they're preventing um, journalists from entering to that part of China or, or, or the calls by the mm. International Committee of the Red Cross to be able to visit. So if there was nothing to hide, one would think that the authorities would not yeah. um, would not deny anyone access, but but they are. Um, now, how do you move beyond that? Um, it's very it's very challenging. Um, we don't have the best record, the international community, of actually preventing and uh, punishing people for the crime of genocide. Um, uh, we, you know, know the the wars in the Balkans, um, you know, genocide against um, Muslim uh, Bosnians is a case. Even with peacekeepers close by, they couldn't end right. it. We had the case of Rwanda, where a peacekeeping force could not end it. Um, so we've tried to create right. on, on top of genocide convention something called the responsibility to protect, um, an agreement that. Countries right, that, that will not or cannot protect their civilians from from genocide and other atrocity crimes, then the national community has a role to get in there. But but it's how do you deal with China, a country that is authoritarian, um, that has absolutely um, it doesn't necessarily care about its own citizens, so uh, it's not going to care much about what Canada right. says. Um, so right. that gets to a really difficult right. point. What policy levers are there that can be used to change China's behavior? One is uh, you know, kind of naming and shaming, and 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 you see more calls to mm-hmm. um, relocate the Beijing Olympics, and that was tied into the to the genocide um, yes. agreement yesterday at Parliament. We hear talk about Magnitsky sanctions uh, to impose sanctions against individuals who are responsible. Yep. 
Um, and then there's also looking at the economic side of this, um, where uh, there's more yeah, calls to look at supply chains yeah. and, and slave labor in the part of China where Uyghurs are being mistreated. So, so these are kind of the options available. They're not perfect. And dealing with a, with a government like China, um, you know, it's, it's, we need a really coalition of states that are going to be together on this because one country alone will not be able to do it. Well, and there's no question that when it comes to China and its attitude towards others, we're seeing this here, of course, in Canada. I mean, I, ha I had an op-ed piece that came out last week in the Ottawa Citizen Post Media about the fact that, you know, China is exerting all kinds of influence uh, within corporations in here and probably stealing technology and, uh, you know, information that we want to protect. And yet the government doesn't seem to be doing a lot about it. That's a whole other issue. But I should also point out for my listeners' sake, Kyle, that, uh, of course, Romeo Dallaire, who was a Canadian who was in Rwanda in 94 and is now part of MIGS Institute. In fact, he's a, I believe he's a founding member, if memory serves me correct. Uh, somebody who witnessed that under, you know, sort of the whole responsibility to protect the R2P back in 94. So the other thing which I find, you know, which people don't know enough about, it's getting out there a little bit. And you and I know this firsthand because you and I have talked to Uyghur Canadians who have uh, been brought, uh, have had pressure put on them, uh, probably by Chinese government agents to basically shut up uh, do not talk about what's happening in Uyghur. Of course, family back home are threatened or, you know, said, if you know, if you if you do not cease in, in spreading this disinformation, uh, it might it might go badly for your family back home. This is maybe an unfair question, but do you know how rampant, uh, how wide that kind of activity is by China to exert influence on expats? They do the same with the Tibetans, by the way. We saw that at I think it was McMaster University a couple of years ago. How how widespread is this Chinese activity as far as you've been able to determine as, as the executive director of MIGS? Um, well, I, I think it's, it's, it's pretty, um, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of Uyghurs who, who, who have said that they feel pressure. They receive, you know, phone calls from numbers in Canada threatening them. They receive emails. They feel that they're being tracked. Um, the, the Uyghur um, community in Canada is, is quite small. It's in a couple thousands. It's not a, a massive group, mm -hmm. but they do, um, in speaking to their leaders, they do feel they're under pressure, um, and they, they are put under pressure. And, um, and, you know, my, my colleagues and I, we, we hosted Dolkanisa, who's the, the leader of the world Uber Congress. Um, he came to Canada and we came under pressure from the Chinese consul general of Montreal. He, he wrote to me personally saying, you can't host this terrorist, then put pressure, uh, then <laughs> the Chinese consulate, uh, put pressure on the mayor of Montreal's office. Um, and, and so we're, they're putting pressure on us. We, we've seen them put pressure on other, uh, you were Canadian, um, speakers at universities, including McMaster. Um, it's become so bad generally mm -hmm. that, um, human rights watch has launched an initiative, um, about the influence of oh. the Chinese government to influence universities and pressure universities, not talk about anything related to human rights. So they've put up a project where they're trying to get universities across North America, to um, join uh, their initiative to stand together on this, so it's it's a it's a pretty big issue, um, and it 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 you know ties into not just the Uyghurs but the Tibetans, some people working for the you know Freedom for Hong Kong yeah. movement, um, the Falun Gong, yes, um, and just general Chinese yes. dissidents in general. Who uh, I've done events and they've been cyber bombed mm -hmm. on our on our events or had their their right. their computer kind of hacked so they couldn't speak. So. So this, this says something that the Chinese authorities feel the need, despite it's all lies and nothing's happening, mm -hmm. but they feel the need to deploy um, either loyal servants of the Z regime or they have their own spies that are doing this um, uh, and harassing 
right. Canadians of of Chinese descent um, that are speaking out, and, and there has been pressure on on families. That's that's recorded. It's it's well documented. Right. You know, it's funny because you know the you say the consul general would say you know don't host that terrorist. This is a classic move by a government who basically says we're going to label somebody a terrorist. Uh, and therefore, we're going to try to get on the side of right here. And, and, you know, they all do it. China does it. Turkey does it against the Gulenists. I mean, I, I've seen some reporting and I've tweeted out last little while. The word terrorism is being used to describe all kinds of things that are not terrorist nature. And it's, it's, it's highly ironic in a sense that China did have a case that there actually were cases of Uyghur terrorism in the People's Republic of China. There were some pretty significant attacks in, 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 in metro stations in various parts of China. Had they played their cards right, they actually would have gotten some sympathy, I, th I think, from the international community in trying to identify the very, very small numbers uh, of Uyghur Muslims who had turned to terrorism. It is a very, very minute number, as terrorism just tends to be. But by labeling the entire population uh, a terrorist population, you know, and then by taking the measures it has with the concentration camps and the sterilization, everything else that you talked about, it essentially has lost any support uh, it may have hoped to gain, gain. And of course, now it's it's trying to do so um, by applying pressure on families and that kind of thing. So let's turn to the vote in Parliament, Kyle. So we had the Parliament yeah. voted, uh, I believe, unanimously, although there was an, <laughs> a lot of people are commenting on this. A lot of Liberal cabinet ministers weren't uh, at the vote yesterday, which raises all kinds of questions as to, did they all have the same meeting? Did they all have the same, you know, 24-hour bug? There were an awful lot of Liberals that were in Parliament when the vote took place. Was this the right move by the Parliament of Canada? And more importantly, and maybe you, maybe you know this better than I do, what weight does a parliamentary vote have, first of all, with, with Canadians? And secondly, a parliamentary vote, does it put pressure on the Liberal government of Justin Trudeau to do more with that? So first of all, was it the right vote? And what will the impact of that vote be? Yeah. Um, so, so I listen, I, I, parliamentarians have the right and the ability to speak out on any issue. Um, the role of legislators is to hold the executive branch of government to account to uphold right. um, the laws that it signs. So in this case, um, they made a proclamation that it's 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 what's happening against the Uyghurs or genocide. Um, they did the statement. I, I, I'm OK with that. I, I think it's the correct assessment. Um, and I, I, I think it, it will also give uh, or empower other um, legislatures across the world to um, to do the same. And, and, and I think this is the one thing that mm. we, we need to see right now. It's starting to put pressure on China. China doesn't, um, you know, it's carrying out these terrible crimes, but is also trying to hide them and, and also wants to bask um, with the Olympics coming up. So I think by adding on also that right. the, the Olympics should be moved, I, I, think, I think that is correct. What the impact will be, um, it's too so, early so, to so say. Canada, so, so, so we're a bit of a... We're a bit of a trendsetter in terms of our Canadian Parliament is one of the first to do this, and you think that will put pressure on other parliaments and other legislatures? Well, around the world? we 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 are the the first uh, Parliament. I mean, the subcommittee recognized it. The subcommittee on on human rights um, was the first parliamentary kind of notion, but this really is it's it's the first um, wow. Western um, uh, Parliament legislator to do so. So so that's historical. Cool. Um, the reason I think it cool. happened though is that is that there's a whole confluence of different things coming together. Um, regarding China. There's the anger about COVID, about China lying about the outbreak, uh, stimming international investigation. Right. There are the two Michaels that have been locked up that Canadians are generally like fed yes. up about this. Um, so, so there's a, yep. there's a, there's a, you know, all these things are coming together to basically have more people angered at 
what China is behaving mm-hmm. as, as a, in general across the world and, and its threats to democracy, human rights, and so forth. So, so, so that, that explains mm-hmm. the wider context. Um, what it will do for the liberal government, I, I yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat frustrated that that more uh, or the cabinet ministers didn't vote; they abstained. Um, you know, I, I think you know there's yeah. a lot of criticism online right now. If you want just us to go on and 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 go onto Twitter and look at um, yeah. at genocide in Canada, and, and there's there's a lot of people uh, you know attacking the liberals or the prime minister. I understand they're in a tight spot, and I understand Canada. Right. We're 37 million people. We're not alone going to be able to change China's behavior. We can't yes. even get our two Michaels released. So it's, it's difficult, but I do think it, it does send right. a message. And, um, and the one thing that, that China does through all of its propaganda is disinformation campaign. It wants to portray China as this glorious paradise. Uh, everyone's happy. Um, and the yes. peaceful rise of China cannot be fought. It, it's all, it's all, it's all positive. And what we're seeing is that there's a real dark side to this, um, an extremely dark side where one to two right. million Muslims are are being locked up and and going yeah. through almost something like Clockwork Orange, um, you know, mass cultural destruction yeah, yeah. of their group. Yeah. Um, it it, it yes. is troubling. So I'm glad that that some of the MPs did stand up. I'm glad you did point out though, Kyle, that I mean the Liberal government is in a bit of a pickle. Um, they know that the two Michaels, so Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, as you said, have been incarcerated for over two years now. This is, of course, is in conjunction with the arrest of the uh, chief financial officer Meng Wanzhou of Huawei in Vancouver in December of 2018. And so the government is trying, obviously, to affect the release of the two Michaels. And if they were to come out really, really strongly, the PRSA may say, you know what, screw you. Uh, the Michaels are never getting out. And so, they're, I mean, they are juggling, I think, several balls simultaneously. This is not, I think, exonerate the Trudeau government uh, from taking more action. And of course, you also saw that the CSIS director came out quite blatantly 10 days ago and said that, you know, China is doing X, Y, or Z. And, and that's what, what my op-ed with piece was all about. Uh, lastly, Kyle, maybe if, if you could sort of share with my listeners, what is the role of MIGS, the Montreal Institute for Genocide Studies at Concordia? What kind of programs are you involved in? And how are you taking the initiative to educate Canadians on the grander notion uh, of genocide and what Canadians can do about it? Yeah, so um, at MIGS, I mean, we're a university-based think tank, so we uh, we interact um, and engage on a multi- multitude of human rights issues, but but genocide, mass atrocities is a key part of our work. Um, so we we are partner with the Canadian All Parliamentary Group for the Prevention of Genocide. We work with with MPs uh, to inform them of what's happening, to bring in experts. Uh, we work with the UN Office for the Prevention of Genocide. Um, we do a lot of public-facing wow. events. We just did a, a major event with Erwin Kotler, who is was one of the most prominent voices in, in okay. calling genocide. So we do a lot of public right. events um, on on the case of the Ubers. We just had a, a major conference that's online with some of the top experts in the world on the on the on the Uyghur um, on the Uyghurs and, and the Uyghur genocide. Uh, we write op eds. We do media interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're part of a couple of different coalitions. We do a lot of high level advocacy. So we. Recently, we were one of the 180 human rights groups that 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 signed an open letter um, calling for the the Olympic Committee um, not to hold the Olympics um, in in Beijing, um, thinking it would be a stain on human rights. We've mm-hmm. recently also joined other human rights groups where we signed um, an open letter to the leaders of the European Union to criticize um, their free trade deal with China and saying that you know you've got to be careful um, because human rights are being 
um, misuse. So, so, so we're engaged in a lot of that, you know, and sometimes we also do a lot of kind of closed door briefings with, with, with experts, um, right. to kind of, right. just to help them understand what's happening. Um, so, and then speak to the media and just kind of raise awareness. That's kind of our, our three or four areas mm-hmm. of, of advocacy, uh, mm-hmm. meeting with policymakers and, and informing, uh, the wider Canadian and international public about what's happening. Well, in fact, you and I went to Parliament a couple of years ago when the the 2019 Global Terrorism Index report came out. We had an individual from Belgium who came to basically launch that, and we went to Parliament Hill to essentially try to do that. So, Kyle, you know, I, I tip my hat to you uh, as Executive Director of MIGS and the staff that you have. I certainly have attended a number of events in the past. Uh, you're doing amazingly uh, well in terms of your I think, public advocacy and your public information program. So kudos to you uh, and the team. And I I wish you every success in, 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 in continuing to do this because this is a really important message that you know Canadians simply aren't getting enough and, and they are dealing with misinformation. And we all know that states like China uh, and Russia are pulling out all the stops to try to confuse people as to what is really happening, what is not happening, and I think it's it's you know it's important that voices such as yourselves at MIGS are you know cutting through all that crap and, and putting the bare facts out there. So uh, you know on behalf of uh, of Canadians, if I can do that, I just want to say thanks to MIGS for for all the work that you do. Thanks. It's 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 always nice. You know we're we're working on a shoestring budget, uh, but bringing information to the wider public and and with high level decision makers. So to hear our work recognized, it's always appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. Well, I'm certainly going to be putting this out to a, a huge social media audience once it's processed. So uh, again, thanks, Kyle. Thanks. All the best. So that was a conversation with Kyle Matthews of the uh, Montreal Institute for Genocide Studies at Concordia. What do you think? What do you think of Canadian Parliament's move to, to label the, the what's happening to Uyghurs in changing problems of genocide? You can reach me on email, borealisrescue.gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like the content, want to get more, you can subscribe. Go to the website, borealisthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. You get a free day of the digest, all the blogs and podcasts and interviews. Love to hear what you think about this podcast and others. Also, there's a link on my, on my website for my new book, the History of Terrorism in Canada, called The Peaceable Kingdom. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe.